Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Ben Orenstein, who is a software developer, blogger, speaker, co-host of the Art of the Product podcast, and also CEO and co-founder of Tuple. Ben Orenstein, we're so glad to have you on Maintainable. Thanks. I'm psyched to be here. So given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of a maintainable software code base? That's a good question. The first thing that jumped into mind as you were as you asked me that was actually not about the code as so much as the team. Like I've thought about how do you make a good a team that's good at this? I have thought about less about like what does the resulting code base look like? Although I would say one attribute coming to me as I stall here is internal consistency. So I have this kind of really strong drive that once you change how you talk about something or think about something and like have a different word for it, I think people think it's like kind of nice to make the code match that. And I think it's really important to make the code match that. And I think that's one of those things that like can add up a lot over time. It's really easy to end up in a situation where the code kind of matches how you think about the world, but not really. And you have to remember all these caveats and they just kind of end up piled on top of each other. And it's, and it's never the great time to just go back and fix all this. So when you say like caveats, are you talking about and how you think about the world? Is that kind of speaking a little bit to say domain driven design in a way, or is it something or is it more specifically about like process? Sure. I mean, like, do you still call them users or do you call them customers? Right. Like, is it a project or is it a task? Like, what are you using when you talk about it amongst each other, like in person? And then what does the code refer to it as? Like keeping that consistency is what I think is important. And do you think that's accurate on like within a development team versus also when you're talking, say, you know, you've worked at an agency before where you work with clients and how they talk about those types of, say, users, whether or not they're customers or donors or what have you? It's nice if it's consistent across all those levels. It's probably okay if you need to have like a term map in your head, I guess, as you talk to like less technical people. But it sure is nice if just like everyone calls it the same thing and you never have to translate. It's true. I, I know that I've we inherit a number of projects and and I often find that there's a lot of those scenarios where, especially with users, is probably one of the most common examples that I've seen where that type of things happened where they're literally just called users and maybe there's a couple booleans or something else in the the model that helps determine whether or not they're an admin or something most often that's like the most generic name for something and like is that what those people call their the people that use the application or is it there's what's what's their role and what are they doing there and and are there different how do they communicate about that and i often find that sometimes the generics part tends to usually come up because of a developer decided to make that decision because they're like well this is maybe a good way to adapt us to i don't care what kind of role they are necessarily I think there's an interesting, as I'm like letting this percolate a little bit more, I think this getting your terms consistent is actually a specific implementation of a more general principle. And as a developer, I can't help but zoom up a level and talk about the more abstract version because it just makes my soul happy, which is implicit versus explicit. And so when you have these sort of slight mismatches, there's like this implicit knowledge in the code or like knowledge that's not quite represented in the code itself and it's sort of stored in your head or stored in your version control or in tickets or something like that. And I think one of these like key features of maintainable systems is shoving as much knowledge as you possibly can into the code itself so that it becomes a source of truth and then you can always look at it and trust it and understand it as opposed to like, 
Oh, yeah. You should, before you touch this, you should go talk to Robbie because this is like kind of a weird thing that you might not expect. That is a form of maybe a way of technical debt. How does your team talk about technical debt? I feel like people tend to refer to technical debt as like any bad decision you made at some point or any code you don't like, I guess. Any code that you are not a fan of. I think a slightly more accurate version of that is a technical shortcut you took intentionally knowing that you were taking on this problem and having weighed it against the cost, decided it was worth it today, and you have the eventual intention of probably fixing it. I think that's kind of the best case scenario. That's like, okay, if that creeps in, you've made the decision, you know you're doing it. I think the way it gets used tends to be more just like, yeah, we wrote some bad code. Well, we have technical debt. It's like, well, you didn't take on that debt. You just backed into that debt sort of unknowingly. What do you believe developers often get wrong when they're discussing technical debt amongst themselves? There's a bit of a fallacy that is someday we'll go clean that up. And it's like tempting to believe because it lets you take on that debt kind of whenever it feels convenient. But I think in reality, you never show up at work on a Monday and go, Today, I'm going to eliminate technical debt. And everyone's like, yes, great. Like, maybe you, maybe like, you know, one person in 100 does this, but it, it's pretty rare. I think it's more likely you have tasks being sort of pushed to you from some sort of product owner or something like this, or like, you know, the customers are asking for some feature, but rarely is anyone asking for you to go refactor the, the widget creator. So it's, it's really hard to get time on a schedule or like a big block of time to go do this. And so I think. Maybe a better way to think about this is that it's more or less your professional responsibility to try to clean this stuff up as you go. And I like to explicitly tackle this kind of thing when I'm about to make a change kind of near it. I like to kind of package it all together. And so first do something like a preparatory refactoring and say, like, I'm going to change the widget creator. So first, let me make this change easy. Do a little refactoring over here. Get that reviewed and merged separately and then go make my easy change. Is that something when you get like, a, say, a user story or something, developers would incorporate that into part of that user story or then becomes like a different user story or whatever, how, whatever approach you're taking to managing you know, the work in the backlog. But I'm assuming the product owner has build new widget and you're like, well, in order for us to do that, we might need to do a little bit of refactoring first. Have you found it work really well to do that work separately like that or to try to combine it as part of the same package when it comes to communicating with stakeholders on how to like fit that in? Yeah, I tend to think of it as a as a combined thing. Like I'll do it as a separate pull request, but to me it's like my job as the as the expert, as the professional is to do what needs doing so that we can keep going fast for a long time. And so I'm not going to explicitly clear it with you like hey, I'm going to refactor this thing as part of that, but I I know that we need to and so I will and I make it part of that work. And that way you're not needing to maybe necessarily argue or like try to advocate for that being approved as a separate type of task like it's interchangeable yeah to me it's like that would be like separating out a core part of your job and being like hey do i have permission to do my job well right now and it's like no i'm just gonna try to do my job well all the time and i don't need to ask hopefully as you're working on software projects and with a team and kind of speaking to this point I've seen different people struggle with where, you know, we'll get pulled into like a team to help out with some project for a little while. And they'll have a big list of things in their backlog of things that are considered 
maybe technical debt or just things that they want to refactor and improve upon, and they're isolated, like do like clean this thing up, update this. Do you find that to be an effective way to, to manage that type of work? Like to have specific tickets for refactoring, you mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, not particularly. Maybe that's what you have to do. Like I, I don't know all the situations people might be in. That could just be what what's required kind of politically for you. But I, I feel like, hey, code needs to be good is not like a separate ticket that you re- like ask for permission or like schedule time for. It's more like if you want this new thing added or this change made, part of doing this is that I need to like have code that lives up to these certain standards because trust me, you want it this way because we're not just working on this for a week. It's going to be you know months. We want to have good, clean code and fewer bugs and whatnot. One of the, the reasons why that's being done is it's a way to get it out of, say, some developer's head so that they know that there's this stuff kind of lingering. They're like, oh, if we ever touch this area, how? And they're trying to communicate that with themselves and or their peers or potential future hires or what have you, other people that may encounter this software project at some point. So how, do, how does someone that's new to the project that's going to start building out a new feature know that they're going to be kind of stepping into this area and like, oh, this might warrant some like refactoring. But I often don't always know that people go back and look at that list anyways to when they're working at that feature. So have you seen any good strategies as a team to help communicate that there's these kind of maybe rat's nest that they might be encountering at some point? Not really. I think the better strategy is like try your best not to create them in the first place. Like don't like this idea of like, we'll go fix this later. I just don't actually think works. I think it it basically never happens. And if you don't believe me, just grab your code base for to do. And if you have less than, you know, a hundred, consider that a surprise. Like I think to do comments are like a perfect example of this, like, oh, surely we'll come back and fix this. And like, let me just leave a little note that just like, you'll find them that are, you know, years old. What types of things do you find helpful to communicate in code, say comments like that? If to do's maybe aren't an effective way of doing that, are there, do you find that there is a valid reason to have something like that in there in the code? I don't mind like explanatory comments of various kinds. So like sometimes I'll, I'll throw a, a comment at the top of a file that gives kind of a high level overview of what's going on in there. That way it's, it's unlikely to fall out of date and can sort of help you quickly get up to speed on what's going on in there. I also try to sometimes put a comment in there very close to where I'm about to do something weird and you know explain like, this is why this is weird. If you're surprised, it's because of this. Those are kind of my two go-tos for that. So over the years, you've talked a lot about how developers should invest more time into learning about the tools that they're working on with on a regular basis. Why do you believe that is so important? And what what types of tools are you speaking about? I mean, imagine a world where I'm wrong and investing time in your tools is a waste of time. I mean, does that sound logical? Like, okay, you're slow at your text editor. You're bad with Git. You don't understand, you know, how to use a database or whatnot. Like, clearly, this is a bad world, right? Hopefully, this statement is not super controversial. I think it's worth spending kind of a lot of time making sure you're, you're competent with the fundamentals of your craft. It's gratifying, too. It's more fun. Like when, As you get better at these things, you find yourself blocked less, and you, you find yourself getting more things done faster. And then people like you, and you get paid more, and life is good. Are you often referring to things like your text editor as a, like knowing how to use a lot of the shortcuts and things like that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's kind of like the fundamental tool in a way what we produce at the end of the day is kind of strings. And so you want to have a really good string editor and know how to use it well, I think. That's true. So let's talk a little bit about your current venture, Tuple. So what is Tuple for those that aren't familiar with it? And then what prompted you to begin venturing off to build your own product? So Tuple is an app. It's a Mac app, desktop app for remote pair programming. So it lets two people write code together when they're working separate from each other. 
it's fundamentally screen sharing with audio, webcam, and then a full remote control. So that I could be like, hey, Robbie, like, can you give me a second set of eyes on this thing and quickly hop on a call and you can control my machine and type if you need to and all that. And I decided to do this because I thought the world needed it. There was a tool that was great for this called Screen Hero that got unfortunately uh, acquired by Slack and shut down. And so there seemed like a gap. No one had done something quite like it and I missed it. So we built something that was, uh, it's sort of its spiritual successor. That's awesome. And is it safe to assume that Tuple has encountered some of your own, building up your, some of your own technical debt? Uh, yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and is it safe to assume that you're prioritizing that work, accounting for it when you're working on new features and stuff like that? And I'm assuming you don't need to maybe have separate product managers that are telling you, like weighing that up compared to when you work in an agency world, right? Yeah, I am basically the product manager for Tuple. And so I'm actually sort of somewhat ignorant to where, what and where the technical debt is. I know that, that we have taken on some of that. We have some of the same downsides of people that take on technical debt, which is that various projects will sometimes take longer than I might expect they would. So we're not, we're not perfect in execution. But it's, it is interesting to be on the other side of this divide, I guess, where it's like, well, I, I just want more and I want faster because I want the app to get better. And then, you know, the people actually writing the code are like, well, sometimes it takes longer and it's going to take longer because of this. And sometimes trade-offs are made. It's a safe assumption that prior to this, you were working more in like the web space primarily. That's right. Transitioning to, say, a desktop application, how has, how has that been different from a, a workflow from your perspective? Is it actually pretty similar when it comes out to how things get deployed and stuff like that? It's definitely different. Now, I, so I have two co-founders, Spencer and Joel, and they have done actually all of the coding of the, the desktop client. I've written a fair amount of the back end that it talks to, but the actual part that's much different, this Mac app, was coded by them. So I, I know a little bit about it, but only from afar. But yes, you're, you're right. All the, all the paradigms are different. Like going from a more or less stateless web request, like response request thing cycle to multi-threaded real-time streaming desktop app in C++ is quite a change in world. And so I'm kind of glad I didn't have, I wasn't the one that had to do it. So I, I had briefly used Screen Hero at one point. And it's been a couple of years since, since that's been around. And I guess probably about three years or maybe give or take. Are you primarily targeting developers with that type of product? Is, is that like a big focus of it? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we very intentionally decided to go after pair programming as a specific use case. I'm a developer. All three of us are developers. We understand the needs of developers. And to me, there's already reasonable generic screen sharing options out there. Like you can use Zoom for this. We have some things that we don't like about that. And so our bet was basically, if we make something that's specifically for pairing, we can make something that has like a better experience and is more pleasant to use than a generic tool. You know, is that primarily for just two users simultaneously? Is there a way to kind of expand that with more people as an audience? Or you know, I'm curious if you're familiar with like mob programming at all. I am familiar with mob programming. So right now, Tuple is definitely optimized for two people. You can add a third person as an observer. So if you need to pull in a designer or a product manager or something and kind of get a, a, another set of eyes on something, that's possible to do. It's not our sweet spot. We're focusing on like really nailing the basics first. That said, I do think that our most common feature request is actually for better mobbing support. So having experienced it one-on-one, people want it with more people, which is cool. So I think at some point we will take on that additional complexity, which is not super small. I'm sure it's not. Is that something that you have a capability as a a user to kind of go back and rewatch what you were working on together? 
No recording yet. Okay. Uh, that's that's kind of also in, in the plans. I'm sure that's a complex thing to add from a disk space. I'm sure just like, where does that live? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And how do you combine everyone's feet together? Right. So prior to uh, working, you know, venturing off into building on your own product, and, and I want to talk a little bit more about product in a little bit as well, because your podcast touches on that. But you used to work at ThoughtBot, which is a you know so pretty well-known software consultancy for a number of years. And I want to talk about a few things that are kind of near and dear to me, in particular, being a good guest in another team's code base. What do you believe are some important things to keep in mind when you're, as a developer, working at a consultancy or a freelancer, when you're going to work on, say, your customer's code base and you're going to join a team? Proving yourself a little bit before you take on too much or suggest sweeping changes is a very good policy. It's a good habit to get into. My tricks when I was coming onto a customer as a new developer were often to try to do little maintenance tasks that were going to be fairly non-controversial that were useful. Like looking at the open issues list and looking at stuff that's really old and just popping in and be like, hey, this hasn't been commented on in a while. Is this still active or should we close this? And maybe try to just do like a little bit of triage, a little bit of cleanup, look for those to-do comments and be like, hey, this to-do comment is five years old. Cool if I delete this? That kind of thing. And just things that hopefully won't stir up people too much, but some people will just kind of look at it and go, hey, Ben's doing useful stuff. Like I actually meant to go through and take a look at those old tickets or something like that and sort of earn a little bit of social capital before you're saying like, hey, look, we really got to you know do a better job of consistently doing code review or pairing or something like that. Have you ever been in an experience where you start doing that and you're met with a, why are you focused on that right now? Those, those things aren't important. Totally. I mean, yeah, th- this would be a thing I wouldn't want to spend like days on. I don't remember ever being like chastised for focusing on that, but more I would just try to stay sensitive to the idea that like you're being paid for your, to try to hopefully ship things, get, get more things done. And so the, the maintenance stuff is not the highest priority, but it's kind of a good way to get to know the code base, like get the tests running, that kind of thing. Out of curiosity, do you have any any good stories of how you joined in a project at one point where the organization of their backlog of stuff was just like severely problematic for being able to really be effective as a guest into it? Yeah, I think most people have that situation in their backlogs. I think most backlog, this is probably controversial, but I think most backlogs are basically useless. I think they are, tend to be sort of full of out of date things that you're probably never going to do. And it makes people feel good to shove something in the backlog in their mind. They're like, okay, now that's dealt with. And in fact, it's not dealt with. And if it were important, it probably would have made it to the top. Instead, it mostly just sits there and makes you feel maybe guilty or something. So lots of people have that situation. And I think it mostly doesn't help that much. So I'm I'm not convinced of the utility of a a backlog, honestly. Yeah, it might be a little controversial there, but <laughs> sure. I can appreciate that sentiment. So over the years, uh, you know, you worked with Ruby on Rails for quite a for quite a while. Are you still using Ruby on Rails with Tuple? Uh, yes, yeah, our backend is a Rails app. Okay, great. Knowing that you've worked on a lot of Ruby on Rails applications and you've done a number of talks related to refactoring and such, what are some of the most common tech debt type problems you've seen pop up in Ruby on Rails applications? <laughs> it's funny. I actually, so I did a, I built a course about this actually called Refactoring Rails, which is about what do you do when your Rails app is like a couple of years old? Like what are the things you need to do to keep the shipping speed up? Because basically progress always slows down as code mass goes up, but there are things you can do to to keep it higher, I think. A classic one for Rails apps I find is callbacks. People tend to get really excited about, oh, this code runs automatically every time we save this or update this or whatever. And it's easy to get a situation where an object 
has so many callbacks that it's often hard to do things to it in isolation. And you find yourself skipping them under certain circumstances or even worse, accidentally triggering real world consequences by doing stuff at the console. It's a very easy thing to do. That's sort of a classic gotcha. And so for those listening that aren't familiar with callbacks, how would you describe that to someone that's not familiar with Ruby on Rails specifically? Sure. So Rails sort of exposes these like lifecycle hooks so that you can say every time someone saves this object or updates it or touches it in some way, you can run this code. So there are certain callbacks that are not too dangerous to do. Maybe you're um, down casing an email address before you save it or some sort of like local changes to the object. The place where people tend to get in trouble is they're like, oh, well, when we save the user, we should go over and we should update the team. Okay, when we, when we make a new user and we save it, we should automatically trigger a welcome email. And you don't realize, oh, maybe there's other times where we want to save a user and we don't want to trigger that. And now you have to remember this for all of time. Uh, easy to kind of hurt yourself that way. No, I can, that makes sense. What about on a testing front? You know, obviously, I think most of our guests on this podcast are big advocates for writing and producing automated tests of some sort. And, you know, when applications tend to be around for a long time, what strategies have you seen work well for teams to keep the test suite running fast? Because I think quite often applications will kind of inherit a lot of tests or different types of tests and things will start to slow down. And then you see these situations where teams are now waiting like, 45 minutes, maybe a couple hours for a test suite to fully run on some CI build, even though it's running on parallelization. Have you seen some like things early on in the in those pro- types of projects that can help contribute to that and or maybe kind of steer clear of running th- those types of scenarios? It's a hard problem, especially because it's kind of like a frog boiling problem where each individual test does not look so bad. It's only as they as you get more and more and more of them that it starts to be painful. And it's hard psychologically to be like, well, should we test this? Like, is, is this worth it? I think the TDD has been beaten into people pretty, pretty strongly, such that they feel guilty around not testing everything. But actually, that's kind of where I've started coming down. I was a very strong TDD advocate. I believed in writing all, like testing all the features all the time at multiple levels of uh, abstraction. And these days, I write confidence-boosting integration tests, like ones that test a lot of the system simultaneously and give me a, pr- a really good sense of like, okay, all the big pieces are fitting together nicely. When I have a particularly thorny area that has a lot of logic that's complicated, I will sometimes drive that out with unit tests. But I've gotten comfortable with not covering everything, partly because of that speed. I actually think test suite speed is kind of important. And there are a lot of tests that don't quite pull their weight. And so I, I do actually, I pay attention to like, how much test code am I introducing? How, sl- how slow are these tests? And are they worth it? I don't think there's a simple answer to this. I think it's a thing you have to kind of agree as a team, as as a variable worth optimizing and pay attention to and decide for yourselves, what is your risk versus reward tolerance on this? You know, if bugs are catastrophic, then you probably want a huge thorough test suite, even if it takes an hour to run. If they're not, maybe there's a trade-off you can make that is better for your team. We'll be back with our conversation with Ben in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listening to Maintainable. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in this industry that I should be speaking with and interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Ben Orenstein.
Do you have any specific opinions at the moment on when you're testing integration with, say, an API in your application? Where is that boundary you draw between leaning on, say, the tests that might come in the, the gem that you might be leaning on versus how you're integrating with that gem? Mm. Yeah, if I, if I can rely on, on someone else's test suite, I will. I love to do that. I tend to assume the gems I use and the APIs I call are going to have their own tests and that they're going to they're going to fix their own bugs and so I can assume they work the way they they say they will work. And so I try not to write tests that I would could be construed as like retesting those dependencies. But also you need to know your app basically works and so I will I tend to have, you know, a couple high-level integration style tests that either hit uh, maybe a faked out version of that API I sometimes will use. So I've, I've contributed to and used like a, a Stripe fake in the past that uh, sort of gives you responses as if you're from the, the Stripe API. I find a, a fake is kind of a heavyweight option typically. So I do that when I really need to know or like when I want to feel a lot of confidence that this thing works. These days, I, I tend to rely a little bit more on stubbing out like the dependency itself, like kind of right in the test. So if I'm about to make a thing that retrieves a customer from Stripe, I might just stub out the Stripe customer dot retrieve method myself uh, and respond with some JSON that I'm I, I control. Nice. And do you have a strong opinion on when it's appropriate to lean on, say, an existing Ruby gem from the community that might be doing something small but very practical for you versus just writing your own code for that piece and, and leaning on the dependency? Because I know there's dependencies tend to be a thing that trip people up from being able to like quickly upgrade major versions at times if you know gems get outdated or whatever. No, I don't know that I have a hard and fast rule for this. I probably tend to reach for a gem a lot of the time. I'm not a big fan of reinventing my own versions of things. Yes, dependencies have a cost, but I don't think I have a good like I don't think I have a controversial opinion on this. I think I have the classic kind of it depends and yeah, you got to kind of do a case by case analysis here. Classic developer answer there. Exactly. So, for those that are unfamiliar with your podcast, The Art of the Product, what topics do you focus on there? It's a podcast I host with another friend of mine who is also a software company founder. And so it sort of spans the gamut. It's kind of the intersection of tech and business. So, we both are technical people, but we're both trying to make a business work around that. And so, sometimes we're talking about code that we're writing or we'll go sometimes deep on technical things but a lot of times it's the other stuff it's like how are you doing sales and what is marketing and how does it work and how do we get people to hear about this app and and things like that so it's kind of like technical people chatting about business time and is that primarily the two of you talking amongst yourselves yeah it's it's almost like a uh what'd you do this week kind of podcast ah okay you know, that's one aspect to, you know, hosting a podcast that you find valuable in yourself. Are there other aspects to having a podcast that you found have unsurprisingly helped you in how you're kind of evolving, like in managing like your business in that kind of context? There have been a lot of benefits, actually. So one is just that like some number of our customers hear about us through the podcast. They come for the podcast and they say, hey, that sounds interesting. We stay sort of top of mind for people because they're I'm like in their earbuds every week. So a few months later when they're like, oh, I need a pairing app. They think about us. Also, a lot of the times I'll just be talking with my co-host about some challenge I have. And then someone will email me who is an expert on that topic and be like, hey, I heard the episode and you know, here's some advice on this. And that's kind of the best, actually. That's pretty awesome. I occasionally get little suggestions like that. But if you're listening, um, I'm always open for some more advice. As we start looking to wrap our conversation up, 
One of the convers- topics I wanted to quickly touch on is just getting some advice from you for people. So let's imagine there's a few developers that are listening right now and they feel like they've asked about like being able to prioritize some time to work on, say, cleaning up some aspects of the code base that they are, feel like are maybe slowing them down from improving their development velocity or what have you. And they're hearing either from their senior peers or management, not right now, maybe later, at some point in the future, maybe too many times is starting to feel like it's no longer worth asking. I'm hoping there's not many people listening to that or encountering that, but I know it pops up. Thinking you know, over a conversation, what advice would you offer them today and what they can start doing to start making some of those, take, take some action forward despite that? Well, two things come to mind. One is kind of the ask for forgiveness, not permission approach, which is like, if you believe that's the right way to do your job, I think you should just do it. If you have a work environment where you can't, do what you think is professionally responsible to do, then I think you probably should change work environments. Like it's never been easier to get a job as a programmer. I think companies vary in quality. And if you're working somewhere that kind of is bad, then maybe you should think about that. Like that's partly on you. A few last questions for you. What non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? Nothing is coming to mind right now, although I, I have a candidate that's making its way onto my list. I'll tell you about a book I'm reading right now that I really like, uh, which is called The Great CEO Within, which is maybe not ideal for... Well, actually, no, it's got a lot of good stuff in there. It's about being a great CEO, but it's really kind of a lot about how do you be personally very productive, and then how do you help a team be productive? And so it's written as if you're the CEO, but at the same time, the habits are totally kind of agnostic to what your actual job is. Like th- there's things that help a team work better and reduce conflict and help you be productive. And I think those things are totally uh, applicable to, to everybody. I'll definitely include a link to that. And I haven't heard of that one myself. So I'm going to check that one out myself. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Twitter is probably your best bet for that. I am R00K on Twitter. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable Band. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Best of luck to you and the team at Tuple. Thanks very much.